Good morning. Uh, we are going to be looking at our gospel passage for this morning from the book of Matthew. Uh, not John. That was my fault that it said John. Uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, the parable of the two sons, it's on page 826. If you'd like to turn there, 826. The parable of the two sons. Uh, this is a hard one. The what? Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. Did not give you the address. You're right. Matthew 21, page 826 in the Bible's in your seats. This is a hard one. Uh, this is a hard parable. Not, not to understand necessarily, but it's a hard one to hear. Uh, particularly uh, for people like us. Uh, the message of the parable is quite simple, but it poses a great challenge. Uh, and, and even a condemnation uh, to those who hear it especially good church people. Um, and yet, even we, good church people, can hear this parable as good news if we have the ears to hear. So let's pray this morning for ears to hear. The parable of the two sons comes to us in the context of Jesus in the temple shortly before his trial and execution. So when Jesus enters the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people uh, came up to him as he was teaching. And this is right before the parable, in that paragraph right beforehand. And they said this, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Okay. Who gave you the authority to teach? As is often the case in the Gospels, this is not an honest question from the chief priests and the elders. Um, you know, we... We know that the religious leaders often asked Jesus questions like these to trip him up, to trick him into saying something that would allow them to condemn him for blasphemy. Okay, you know, I kind of think of these situations like uh, Jesus is being sworn by paparazzi or something. It's kind of like gotcha journalism. Okay, they're trying, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Right? And um, Jesus, of course, is too smart for them. He knows how to play their game. And so he turns the tables on them. He says, I'll ask you a question. You answer mine, I'll answer yours. Was John's baptism done on the authority of heaven or on human authority? Okay, so that basically means he's asking, was John the Baptist really a prophet? Chief priests and the elders are faced with a dilemma here. And it could turn into a PR nightmare for them. Well, if we say that John's not a prophet, the people are going to turn on us because they really like John. If we say he is a true prophet, then we're going to condemn ourselves because we're not following John the Baptist. Okay, so it's a lose-lose. So they say, no deal, Jesus. We don't know the answer. We're not going to even try to answer that question. No deal. And so then Jesus answers them with this parable. What do you think? I love that. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answers, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the other son and said the same, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And that son answered, yes, sir, I will go. But he never went. Which of these two sons did the will of his father? And, and it's so clear <laughs> that the chief priests and the elders have no choice but to say, the first son, right? The first son did the will of his father. 
Um, I find the, the two responses of the sons here pretty fascinating. Uh, Jesus was a masterful storyteller, as we know, and everything he says is so rich. And our Bible translators have done good work for us here, but these responses are actually kind of difficult to translate. Well, okay, they're actually quite easy to translate, but not into intelligible English. Uh, not into English that would make sense to our ears. Um, the words are simple, but getting them from Greek to English can be, that's the hard part. Uh, so the first son says, I will not. Okay, that's, that's quite a literal translation. What, do I, what I mean by that is what we would say uh, in our parlance, I guess. The first son says, I don't want to. I will not. Right? I don't want to. And the second son, our translation says, I go. But he doesn't actually say that. He actually says, I, not yes in pirate speak, but I, the pronoun. Son, go work in the field today. I, that's what he says. Now, if we don't really know that, that he really just is sort of pointing to himself saying, I, there are a few different ways that we might interpret the second son's response. Right? If he is saying, I will go, perhaps he just forgot to go. Maybe he got wrapped up in some important business and it totally slipped his mind or he ran out of time to get down there. Maybe he had his nose in a book or he was playing some video games or something and he just responded without really hearing what his father had said. Maybe there was no malicious intent to disobey, right? Maybe it was an accident. Okay, but, but when we know that the response is I, just that one single pronoun, that clears things up for me quite a bit. You see, he had no intention of obeying his father. He had no intention of going to do the work that his father had given him to do. He had every intention of obeying himself. To the second son, the world is about I. The world revolves around me. And even if he had gone to work in the field, it would not have been to serve his father. It would not have been to take care of the vines so that they could have had a good harvest. It would have been to prove himself to be the good son, right? It would have been to garner praise for himself, but he's got better things to do and the vineyard can wait a day. His brother's gonna go, right? He just heard him say that. And there are probably servants already out there. There's field hands. You can always hire a day laborer. That's not in my wheelhouse. I've got bigger and better things to do with my time. The world revolves around I. So those are the two responses. I don't want to, and I. And the first son ends up changing his mind and going. The second son does what he really meant to do all along, never goes. That's Jesus' answer to the question, was John the Baptist's baptism done by heaven's authority or by human authority? Let's figure out what the heck he's talking about. <laughs> what does this mean? Uh, why, why is this story, why is this the story that he chooses for this moment with the chief priests and the elders? So luckily, Jesus makes it clear for us in his own interpretation. Take a look at uh, verses 31 and 32. He makes it clear who these two sons represent. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, you chief priests and elders. 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So the chief priests and the elders are the second son. You know, we are so used to hearing about Jesus clashing with the religious leaders of the day that it's possible we may lose the gravity of what he's saying here. Who is he talking to? Priests and elders. Y'all, priests are responsible for ushering the people into the presence of God. In the act of worship, the priests represent God to the people and they represent the people to God. These were the people who entered into the holy place and into the most holy place, one of them did, and into the very presence of Yahweh, the Lord of armies who smites his enemies and rescues his people. And they are the second son, the one who's not doing the will of the father. The elders are the most respected men in the community. They have studied and taught Torah in, in the synagogues. They have settled disputes in the community. They're the senior wardens of the vestries and they're the leaders of the Bible studies, the leaders of the community groups, and they are the second son. These leaders are supposed to be serving the people, looking out for the people, living as examples to the people, showing them what it looks like to be totally committed to God, but they have made it all about I, they're the second son. And so we, good church people, are immediately presented with a question. Are we the second son? And this is a question that needs to be asked by every single person in this room, including those of us who have these things on. Why do I do what I do? Am I doing the will of my father? Even if I am by all accounts obeying, am I doing it to serve my father or am I doing it to further the illusion that the world revolves around me, right? Am I doing the work of the kingdom or am I doing the work of self-promotion? Do our lives say, look at God or do they say, look at me? It's such an easy trap to fall into. What we find here in the response of the second son is that, yes, actions matter, okay? It, it matters very much that he did not go to the field. But what we also find is that motivations matter and intentions matter. And, and even if, if we are doing what we would consider good work for the kingdom, if we're doing it for our own glory, y'all, that's gonna be burned away. That's worth nothing. It leads to disappointment and death, ultimately the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. That's what Jesus says. You'll remember that uh, this is also a common theme in Jesus's teaching, right? We, we know that the tax collectors were unsavory characters, to say the least, uh, back in these days. They were considered traitors. And today, still, there, there's a distaste for a taboo around prostitution, and yet these are the people that Jesus uh, spends time with. These are the people he says will enter the kingdom of God before the clergy, before the pastors, the vestry members, all those people that we think of as very important people. But of course, uh, these are not the only people that Jesus is talking about here. Back when I was a, a seventh grade English teacher, 
I would have told my students that this is a great example of synecdoche. Y'all remember your literary devices, synecdoche, anybody? No? Okay. (laughs) That's a literary device, thank you. Uh, A literary device that Jesus is using where he is using a part to describe the whole, okay? So an example of that, we would say something like, uh, hey, what's the head count for the party, right? Hopefully we mean, what's the person count for the party? Hopefully there's not just a bunch of detached heads at the party. We're using a part to describe the whole. Check out my new wheels means check out my new car, right? We're using a part to describe the whole. That's what Jesus is doing here. Tax collectors and prostitutes are standing in for all the outcasts, all the dregs of society, all the untouchables, all the people that you would rather not be associated with because, as Colin Hansen said last week, they sin differently from you. So feel free to add whomever it is you can't stand to this list because they sin differently from you. Tax collectors and prostitutes, progressives or conservatives, bad drivers, politicians or activists, people who talk on the phone in waiting rooms, people who don't use their turn indicators, telemarketers, scam artists, criminals. As crazy as these people may make us, as annoying or inconvenient or off-putting as they might be, they will enter the kingdom of heaven ahead of all the second sons who busy themselves looking in the mirror all day. They're getting in first. Why? Well, there are two reasons, I think, that I could identify here. Uh, For the first, let's look at the first son's answer to the father. I don't want to. I will not. You know, this is uh, unlike the second son's answer on the surface, anyways. Unlike the second son's answer, the first son's answer is deliberate disobedience. This is flagrant rebellion against the father's wishes. I don't want to. But I'll tell you what. This answer is infinitely more respectable than the second son's answer because at least it's honest. And at least it recognizes that the father has some authority over him. Right? The first son at least recognizes that, that there, is, there is a father who he should obey even if he doesn't want to. The second son is, is paying lip service to the father, but in his mind it's all about him the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the other sinners may be a lot of things, but they know where they stand. Okay, the people in this world who have been told all their lives that they are less than, that they are nothing, that they are trash, they know where they stand. Right? They know they need good news. They know they're not the center of the universe. They know enough to know that there is a God who has a claim over their lives, even if they don't want to serve him. The second and the most obvious reason is that they, like the first son, eventually do the will of the father. They go obey. Now, if you're, if you're like me, you might hear that and think, oh no. Uh, we probably should think, oh no, uh, because as scripture teaches us and as we learn in our own life experience, it is, it is impossible to completely obey God, right? I mean, we try, 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 and we fail, fail, fail. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
The holiness and the righteousness of God are so magnificent and completely other from us that they will crush us. We can't completely obey what God wants us to do. And so if you are hearing, you know, upon the first reading of this parable, it could be possible to think that in order to be the first son, you simply have to turn your life around and start obeying from here on out. And if that's the way we read this, we are going to be sorely disappointed. And we are going to learn that ultimately we are still living like a second son. Because that, de- that desire comes from the place of I. Look at me. I figured it out. I'm obeying. But we're never going to figure it out. We're never going to turn our lives around on our own. That is a myth. So how is it then that the tax collectors and the prostitutes do the will of the Father? How are they the first son? Let's look again at verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. They believed. To do the will of the Father is to believe the one he has sent. That's it to believe the promises of God delivered through the person he sent to do the will of the Father is to have faith. I know that we've talked a lot about faith recently. (laughs) Uh, If you're new, uh, we just recently wrapped up a series on the book of Habakkuk, and uh, we got three sermons in a row basically talking about what faith is. So I'm not going to rehash all of that uh, for us here today. Uh, I thought I heard an amen out there, maybe not. Um, but reminders are helpful, okay, in, in a way that's most of what we preachers do. So we remind you of things that you already know. So let me remind you this morning that faith is all it takes to do the will of the Father, and let me remind you that faith is not something that we do on our own. You know, we, we know usually as Protestants, as good Bible-believing Protestants, that we don't earn our way into God's good graces with our works, But sometimes we forget that we don't earn our way into God's good graces with our faith either. Never forget, brothers and sisters, we are saved. We don't save ourselves. We are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gift. We need to remember that none of us is able to do the will of the Father on our own. None of us, no, not one, is capable of really, truly being the first son. You know, we might get as far as that, as that response, I don't want to. I imagine that's a fairly common feeling these days with everything going on in the world and everything going on in our lives. We may get that far. I don't want to. But the matter of actually doing the will of the Father, doing it right, doing it perfectly, will never get there. Will never be the first son. That's why it's such good news that there's another son who does that for us. There is a true son of the Father. There's a son who agonized in Gethsemane over what he knew to be the Father's will. There's a son who sweated blood and prayed all night, all night long and said, Father, I don't want to. I don't want to. Take this cup away from me. Right? But then the son said, not my will, 
yours be done. And he went down into the vineyard to do the work that God had given him to do. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is the true first son. And and it's by believing in him that we too can do the will of the Father. Right? And remember, we talked about this. We talked about what believing is, what faith is. It's not just intellectual agreement. We don't just go in our heads, okay, yes, there was a man named Jesus and the crucifixion happened. We don't, it doesn't mean we just acknowledge that Jesus was a good teacher and go on living our lives. No, to believe in Jesus is to receive him as a gift, to be united with him to be made one with him and to be made a member of his body on earth. And so brothers and sisters, when you are united to Christ by faith, you become his hands and feet in the world. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that we, the church, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so when we receive Jesus as a gift, when we stake our lives on the fact that he is fulfilling God's promises to defeat evil, to cleanse us, to make us whole, to spread his blessing throughout all the earth, we are joined to him and to each other by faith so that through us, Jesus does the will of the Father in the world. Okay, now that might sound a little abstract, a little up in the clouds, okay, but, but it's, it's very important that we understand this as Christians, because faith does, to be sure, have real and practical consequences for how we live our lives. And we're going to talk about that. But if we get the order mixed up, if we make the consequences of faith the prerequisites of faith, then we're going to be crushed by our inability to do God's will on our own. We must never forget that where we fail, Jesus succeeds. We must never forget that we are joined to Christ by faith so that through us, Jesus does the will of the Father in the world. He is doing the work. Okay, now that doesn't mean it's easy. Faith is all it takes. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that faith is costly. Faith makes demands on our lives. Faith is difficult. To be baptized into the church is not the end of faith, it's the beginning. To, to say the sinner's prayer is not the end of faith, it's the beginning. Faith is to believe the promises of God and remember what we said that means. To have faith ultimately means that we are going to live like God is trustworthy. To believe the promises of God is to live in the light of knowing that God keeps his promises, being freed. Right from the prison that is our present, to live as though they are already fulfilled. We could go back to the book of Habakkuk, or we could go forward to Hebrews 11 to find some examples of great men and women who have lived with extraordinary faith, and I encourage you to do that on, our, on, on your own. But where better can we look to see this in action than in Jesus? I don't want to. I mean, he almost said that exactly. I don't want to. Please take this cup away from me. And yet he drank the cup. He drank the cup of suffering and death, the cup that you and I poured for him, by the way, because he believed that his father was trustworthy. He believed that his father would keep his promise. 
And he went out to do the work that he was given to do. And his father kept his promise. And when we are united to his son by faith, we are then able to go out and do the work of his son to to reconcile the world to the father. As as the Bible says, to to count ourselves among the lowest members of society who are going to lead us on the way to the kingdom of heaven. We're freed to show his praise, not only with our lips, like the second son, but in our lives, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes who heard the messenger of God and believed. So will you have ears to hear this morning? Will you believe his promise? Will you believe in the one God has sent and be united to him by faith? Will you, as his body on earth, go down to the vineyard and do the work of the kingdom? Let's pray. Father, so often we don't want to. We don't want to obey you. And even when we try, we fail. Thank you for your son that he went down to the vineyard to do the work that you gave him to do and that because he was faithful, we can be saved, that we can be united to him and to each other by faith, that we can be brought into your family, into your kingdom, and that we can do the work you've given us to do, to go out and spread that kingdom, to invite others into into your family, or they can experience forgiveness of sins and new life and community and love. We ask that you would um, always keep us mindful that it's only by your grace that we can do anything right. It's always a gift from you. We ask that you would bless the work of our hands this upcoming week as we go to do the work you've given us to do. Not our will, but yours be done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.